Turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 through 8. Let me ask you a question as you're turning there. I didn't do this in either of the other two services, but it just hit me that I should do this. I want you to raise your hand if it's been a really tough week, really tough month, really tough year, if you would say, you know, I, I really need to hear a word of encouragement today. I really need to hear that God's in control. I really need to hear something that's going to give me some strength and some courage and some faith for the week ahead. If you, would, if you really feel that weight right now, would you raise your hand? Good grief. Thank you. Yeah, well, I think this is what you're going to need, not what I have to say, but the story that we're going to talk about. See, I want to start by saying this. This has been a difficult year in a lot of ways, not by any means the hardest year in the history of our country or the world. I want you to think about 77 years ago, Christmas of December 1943. And I realize most of you weren't alive then, and even those of you that were can't remember that far back. But uh, that in that year, think about the fact that millions of people were under the, the thumb under the tyranny of Nazi Germany. All of Europe was under that, that awful tyranny. And then in the East, you had Imperial Japan, which was similar. Again, most of Asia was under the control of that oppressive government. And then you had thousands and thousands of people besides that behind the razor wire of concentration camps. And all of them, all those millions of people were thinking the same thing. When will our liberation come? They knew the, the allied nations of this world that still believed in freedom had a plan, had a, had a hope of regaining the initiative and overthrowing these forces of oppression. But when was it going to happen? If you lived in one of those countries, if you lived in Singapore or China, uh, if you lived in England or Austria or Belgium, you looked up into the skies every day and thought, when am I going to see those squadrons of bombers overhead? When am I going to see paratroopers coming down? When am I going to hear the invasion has begun? And it never seemed to come. Months went by with no sign of any action. And what they, what they needed to understand is it wasn't because nations like the United States and England didn't care. They did very intensely. It's just that this is the kind of thing you only had one shot at and you had to get it right. First Germany had to topple. First Nazi Germany had to be toppled. And then you had to claim all of Europe. And then you could focus your attention on the, on the East, on Japan. And the first step was you got to get boots on the ground in Europe. And that's pretty hard when the enemy owns the entire continent and they know you're coming. So you've got to figure out how do we get our men on the ground without them being obliterated the, the second they step foot off their boats or, or jump out of their planes. And so there was this incredible deception effort called Operation Fortitude. A lot of people don't know this part of history. The Allies actually built two phony army bases in England, one uh, on the coast of England so that the, the enemy would think we were going to land in Calais right across the channel. The other one was in the north in Scotland so that they would think that we were coming in through Norway. And when I say fake bases, I mean they built an entire army base. They didn't, they didn't pretend. It was an actual army base except the planes were made of wood and, and the tanks were made of rubber. And they looked genuine from the sky, but they had actual soldiers based on those bases so that the enemy, when they would fly over in their spy planes, they'd see people milling around. They actually, in fact, 
assigned General Patton, George Patton, probably the most famous commander in the whole Allied army, to one of those bases so that if word got back to the Nazis, they'd say, oh, well, obviously, that's where the invasion's gonna be. They wouldn't waste their best man. They even, they even asked the permission and were granted it from a, a grieving family in England. Their, their young son, their, their uh, young adult son had died of pneumonia. They said, can we use his body in this effort? They took his body, dressed it in a military uniform, put some phony invasion plans in his breast pocket and dumped his body in the ocean, in the, in the channel, so that it would wash up in France and be found by the Germans. It actually happened. And all of that, all of that to, dis, to disguise the fact that in June 6, 1944, hundreds of thousands of men were gonna land on Normandy Beach and thousands more would jump out of planes. That was the beginning of the invasion. Please understand, nobody was liberated on June 6, 1944. Nobody got set free from those concentration camps. No nations were set free, but that was the beginning. And I say all that, not just because I'm a history nerd, which I am, but because that's what Christmas is for us. Christmas is the invasion that started our liberation. Christmas was the beginning of the offensive that brought us freedom, liberation, salvation. It's the day God invaded our world. And what we're gonna talk about today is, in order to get to Christmas, God used even more deception than the allies did. And from that day until the end of Jesus's mission on earth, he used even more deception than the allies did. I get all of this, this idea, at least, the basic idea for the sermon from a, a pastor I, I've met once who I greatly admire. Uh, he was for many years the, uh, the director of missions of the New Orleans Baptist Association. Um, his name is Joe McKeever. He's now retired, but still preaching, writing. Uh, he wrote an article many years ago called How God Fooled Satan at Christmas. And I read that and I thought, one of these days I wanna preach on that. Well, today's that day. So we start with 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7 through 8. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there's two words in there I want you to focus on, and the first one is the word mystery. We hear the word mystery and we think of Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes, or if you're a certain age, Scooby-Doo, right? We think, of, we think of a whodunit and it's usually the butler. But when God uses the word mystery in the Bible, he means something different. He means something that I've been planning, something that I knew about that none of the rest of the world knew about. And that's the case with the salvation plan of God. The most important thing in history, the plan of God to liberate the world was a mystery until it happened. Even though when you read the Old Testament, and you and I do this, every Christmas we read uh, prophecies that foretell that Jesus Christ is coming. He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. He's gonna be born of a virgin. And he's gonna grow up and live a perfect sinless life. And he's gonna heal people. And he's gonna bear our burdens. And he's gonna die on the cross. And he's gonna rise again. And you can virtually reconstruct the life of Jesus from the prophecies of the Old Testament. And yet, get this, it was all still a mystery. Because even though there were people who devoted their lives to studying what they called the law and the prophets, we call it the Old Testament, even though they knew more of the scriptures than anybody in this room, and even though beyond them, there were thousands and thousands of Israelites who were just desperately hoping the Messiah would come, like, like the people in, in Europe and Asia in those days in, during World War II, wondering, when's it gonna happen? When's our liberation going to come? When it happened, 
it was a surprise to everybody. And, and this is not what I'm preaching on today. This is just something, a tangent that I need to, I need to chase down because it's important. That ought to make you and me very humble when we think about, read about, and talk about the second coming of Jesus. Because Jesus is coming back, and there are plenty of prophecies about how it's going to happen. But when you hear preachers talk about, write about, preach about, well, you know, the tenth horn of the beast represents this, and this is what's going to happen here, and this army is going to invade here, and this... Just understand, the more confidence a preacher has in his particular interpretation of those passages, the less you ought to trust that preacher. See, there are two things we know. Jesus is coming back, and we better be ready. Beyond that, you need to be humble. So when a preacher comes out and says, I got it all figured out, just turn off the channel. I mean, turn, change the channel, change your radio, walk out of the church, because that guy is infected with his own pride. We should be humble. If it was a surprise the way it happened the first time, it'll be a surprise the second time. When Jesus returns, all of us are going to rejoice, and then we're going to say, oh, that's what that meant. Because that's the way it was the first time. Now, that's not what I'm preaching on today. That's for free. Let's get back to the message. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is the term rulers of this age. So God is, God's plan to redeem the world was a mystery, and the rulers of this age missed it. If they'd seen it, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. What's he talking about? Who are the rulers of this age? Is he talking about Herod, Antipas, Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, and Pilate, the three men who met Jesus on that day and condemned him to death? Or is he talking about the unseen forces of evil? Because we know that's a way Paul uses that term, rulers. Here's an example, Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are two things we need to establish. I think most of you would agree, but just in case. Number one, Satan is real. He's not a metaphor. He's real. He is a real being. There really are unseen forces of evil all around us. That is true scripturally. Number two, Satan is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. He's not like God. Now, he, he can outwit you and me, but he is not on the same level as God. So is Paul talking about that or is he talking about human rulers? I think he's talking about both. I think he's talking about Satan himself, and I think he's talking about the human rulers he uses to accomplish his purposes on earth. So what we want to do today is something you may never have thought of, and that is let's look at Christmas and the mission of God from the perspective of the devil. How did Satan view this? Because he knew Messiah was coming. He knew God had a plan. He just didn't know how it was going to work out, when it was going to start, where it was going to happen. If he had, he would have done things very differently. So let's take a look, first of all, at the idea that when Jesus was born, the devil didn't know it. Here's how I know that. Here's a teenage girl in Nazareth. The devil's not paying attention to her. She goes to her fiancé and says, I'm pregnant. An angel told me it's going to be the Son of God. Satan has no idea. How do I know that? Because he wasn't there, because he didn't show up and kill her right where she stood. 
If he knew anything at all about Mary and Joseph, he probably chuckled to himself and said, well, good, another unwed pregnancy, score one for me. He surely wouldn't have thought it had anything to do with God's plan. When months later, thousands of people flocked to Bethlehem and other cities all across Israel. The devil knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem because it says so in the book of Micah, but he didn't know that's what was happening. He surely wouldn't have figured that God would allow his child to be born in a clogged, congested, overrun city. And he certainly didn't expect the child to be born to a couple so poor they couldn't even afford a lamb for the sacrifice. Surely, if God's going to send his son into the world, he'll be born to a king or to a prince or to a scholar or to a general, not some poor carpenter and his unwed bride. He didn't know that God had orchestrated this whole thing to provide cover for the birth of his son. The census, that was cover. The fact that a child was born in squalor, the fact that a band of shepherds went running around talking about we saw angels, he didn't pay any attention to that. Because after all, those are the kinds of people who tell wild stories to get attention. The invasion happened and Satan had no idea. I know this because he would have killed the Lord if he could have. Can you think about, can you imagine the risk God took to come into this world in the form of the least threatening being in the world, a human infant that can't control anything, can't even see past a few feet from his face, can't speak, can't defend himself. God provided cover for his son to be born. The first time we know the devil was aware of the presence of the Lord on earth was when the Magi approached Jerusalem. Remember those wise men from the east? I know on a, in our uh, nativity sets and our Christmas pageants, we all picture it happening at the same time as Christmas night, but all scholars are very much in agreement. It had to have been months, if not at least two years from the time Jesus was born that those, shepherd, those uh, wise men arrived. So they came and they said, We've seen his star in the east. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And keep in mind, these were astrologers. These were sorcerers. These were the kinds of people who had always been handy tools to the devil. And now he says, they can be my tools again. They can do my recon work. When, when Herod the Great says to those wise men, go and worship him and then come and tell me where he is so I can worship him too. That has the devil's fingerprints all over it. That's exactly how he operates. False piety and deception and, and, and plotting to, to do destruction and, and commit murder. That's exactly the way the devil works. What he didn't know is God got the drop on him. These men, these wise men from the east that the devil thought was in his pocket were actually God's men. And he told them in a dream, don't go back to Jerusalem after you see my son. Head on back to your homeland where you came from. When Satan and Herod realized they had been deceived, there was rage. And this is the part of the Christmas story we don't like to talk about or think about. That Herod sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every male child two years old and younger. The slaughter of the innocents as we know it. We don't know how many babies were killed, how many families were destroyed, but doesn't that sound like something the devil would do? And he must have thought, I've done it. I've killed him. I've been completely thorough. I, I, I've, I've wiped out any possibility. Again, he didn't know that God was one step ahead of him, had told Joseph, the, the adopted father of his son, take the boy and his mother to Egypt. They got away scot-free. 
So the devil must have thought he'd won, must have thought he had, he had conquered the threat. He had no idea that this young apprentice to a carpenter growing up in Nazareth was any kind of threat at all. After all, the boy never did any miracles. Why would he? You understand, don't you, that if Jesus had done even a single miracle in Nazareth growing up, if he'd been super boy of Smallville, let's say, it would have put a target on his back long before it was time for him to execute his mission. Jesus had to exercise incredible self-control and wait until the appropriate time. Remember, before that first miracle at the wedding at Cana, he said to his mother, my time has not yet come. Everything had to go exactly right. So decades passed with no threat whatsoever, and then suddenly a prophet bursts onto the scene. You understand there hadn't been prophecy in Israel for over 400 years. Nobody had heard the voice of God. Suddenly there's this wild man out in the wilderness wearing camel skin and eating bugs and preaching the most non-seeker-sensitive message ever, which is essentially, you're all going to hell and you deserve it. So come, get baptized, repent of your sins, and tell God you want to change. And by the thousands, people were coming out into the wilderness. The well-heeled from Jerusalem and the, the rednecks from Galilee and everybody in between were coming to be baptized, to say, I, I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. Even soldiers from the Roman army were getting converted. And the devil's ears must have perked up because he heard this man say, I'm not the show. I'm just here to prepare the way. I'm the opening act. The one you're here to see, he will come soon. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And when he comes, he will set things right. And then one day that man, John the Baptist, was baptizing one of these poor wretched creatures out in the desert in the, in the Jordan River when suddenly the sky cracked open and the voice of God was heard on earth for the first time in four centuries. And that voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that is the moment when the devil was first acquainted with the name Jesus of Nazareth, when he knew who this man was, this inconspicuous, this humble-looking man, nothing in his appearance to recommend him. And from that day forward, the forces of evil were after him. You notice the next thing that happens after Jesus is baptized is he goes into the desert to pray and fast and prepare himself, and Satan is waiting for him there. That's their real introduction in, in, on this earth, that is. The devil did his best over the next 40 days to trip Jesus up, to get him to commit even one sin. He even said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is bow down before me. You don't even have to mean it. Just, just a symbolic action. And Jesus, even in his weakened state, having not eaten for 40 days, not had any water, not, probably hadn't slept. You know, the devil didn't let him sleep either. Even then, he was able to withstand him. And Satan left him at the end of those 40 days and said, I'm coming back at an opportune moment. There will come a day when you're even weaker than you are now. There will come a day when I know exactly how to get out you. There will come a day when I will have you right where I want you. And then I will strike. And in the meantime, the forces of evil were on the prowl. Every demon in the arsenal was doing his best. Have you ever noticed that in the entire Old Testament, there's not one story of demonic possession? Elijah, Elisha, none of the prophets came across someone who was demon-possessed. It doesn't start until the New Testament. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. 
this is just my theory, just me, not the Bible. Here it is. I believe this was Satan's desperation tactic. He knew that he had failed to stop the invasion from happening. And now his desperation tactic was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what, what God least wants me to do. I'm going to hurt as many people as possible. I'm going to just infect their lives and destroy them. And, and, and maybe that will intimidate Jesus or maybe that will distract him. Maybe in some way that will keep him from accomplishing his mission. But if I'm right, if that's why he did what he did, it failed spectacularly. Because there were two things that happened anytime a demon-possessed person met Jesus. Number one, the demon inside that person proclaimed Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. Free advertising from the enemy. It doesn't get any better than that, right? Think about it. None of Jesus' disciples could put their finger on who he was. They had their ideas. They weren't exactly sure. Finally, three years later, Peter at Caesarea Philippi says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But long before that, the demons were saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The second thing that happened every time Jesus met a demon-possessed person is the demon ran for the hills. Jesus won every single time. Which shows you the relative level of strength of these two, doesn't it? But the devil had other humans at his disposal. The religious leaders of Israel, ironically, were in his pocket, although they didn't know it. Their own pride, their own self-centeredness, their own lust for their own power and jealousy of anyone who threatened it, most of all, their own idolatry of religion instead of worship of God made them the perfect tools for the devil. Watch out for that, y'all. We're a lot of religious people in this room, including me, and it can happen to us as well. They rejected the Messiah. They harassed him. They falsely accused him. They even tried to kill him at times. Although Jesus was pretty good at saying, I'll decide when I'm ready to die. And then can you imagine how excited the devil was when he found out that one of Jesus's own disciples, one of his 12 best friends was willing to turn on him, was willing to help bring him down. And in a cover of darkness on a dark, dark night, Judas led a gang of thugs to where he knew Jesus would be praying with his friends, and they arrested him. And finally, he was in the hands of Satan, where the devil had always wanted him to be. After eons and eons of being on the bottom, the devil now had God right where he wanted him, encased in a frail human body and in his custody. And everything from that point went very smoothly over the next 24 to 48 hours. Because first of all, those religious leaders were all too easy to manipulate so that they could, they could declare Jesus guilty of blasphemy and, and worthy of death according to the Jewish law. The mob outside Pilate's palace, even more easy to manipulate. Mobs are easy to craft according to your purposes. Crucify him, crucify him, they chanted. And then the Roman leaders were easiest of all because they just wanted this to go away. Okay, so this man's innocent. What do we care if some Nazarene peasant dies? What matters is that we stay in our positions of authority and the peace and order that we so love continues. Things went so well for the devil, he even took time to have a little fun. Have you ever wondered about that moment between the time Jesus is beaten, has the skin flayed off his back, and the moment he's crucified these professional soldiers, these men who kill every single day for whom this is just business, why do they take time 
to take this one poor peasant and wrap him up in a, in a purple robe and, and craft a, a crown of thorns and jam it on his head and, and stand there mocking and, and, and leering and, and beating this poor innocent person. Why, why this one? And you might say, well, they hated Jewish people. They killed Jews every day. I think it's because the devil said, I've been waiting for this moment. And I'm going to unleash every bit of fury I have, every bit of hatred, every bit of evil. I'm going to make you suffer. And then they crucified him. And even then the devil wasn't satisfied. As long as there was air in the lungs of Jesus Christ, Satan would twist the knife and every man who passed by him on that cross spat in his face, mocked him, challenged him. Come down from that cross if you're the son of God. When he took his last breath, it must have taken the devil by surprise. Surely it couldn't have happened this easily. Where are the legions of angels? I thought I was going to have to fight a battle here. Why didn't he come down from the cross? He's always saved himself in the past. It seemed too good to be true. Even the fact that the sky grew dark for the last three hours of those six that Jesus hung on the cross seemed like an indication that God himself had given up. Jesus even said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine between Friday night and Sunday morning, the self-congratulation that existed in the devil's mind, the, the incredible boasting he did in that time, those 36 or so hours? I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 2.8. I, I want us to look at that scripture again. It says, none of the rulers of this age, not Pilate, not Caiaphas, not Herod, not Satan, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see what that's saying, right? Killing Jesus on the cross was the worst mistake the devil ever made. His death wasn't defeat, it was victory. It didn't end his mission, it fulfilled it. It is finished, Jesus said, as he died. Satan had no idea what that meant, but he found out. Jesus wasn't a victim of injustice, that's the way we often paint him. No, he was a hero rescuing lost souls. He was the original first responder. He was dying not because the devil wanted him dead, but because someone needed to pay our sin debt, and there was only one who really could. We took, it, it took someone perfectly righteous, and there's only one of those. So Judas, the Sanhedrin, the mob, the, Russians, the Roman system of justice, the soldiers, they were all unwittingly doing the perfect will of God. They fell right into his trap, and it was days before the devil even understood it. I want you to imagine how he felt the first moment he heard about the resurrection. Here's how Joe McKeever puts it in his article. I think this is perfect. On that first resurrection Sunday, an imp rushed into the presence of his satanic majesty, interrupting the two-day celebration over the death of Jesus. The demon breathlessly announced that the tomb was empty, the body gone, and the soldiers looked like they'd seen a ghost. Satan had been had and he knew it. He had played right into God's hands and was defeated. Can anybody say hallelujah? That's some good news, isn't it? So that's more than just a great story. Why do I tell you that? Two reasons. Number one, it shows us how God works. Think about all of us who said, I need to hear an encouraging word today. I need to know that God is in control. I need to know that things are about to get better. We're like those people in 1943 looking to the skies thinking, when is my liberation going to come? 
And just like them, we didn't know. We don't know what God's doing. We don't know all the incredible things that are happening behind the scenes specifically for our liberation. We can't see them. And we don't see them until probably long after it happens. I mean, think about that first Christmas. Who even paid attention when this poor teenager got pregnant outside of marriage? Who even cared when she gave birth in a feed trough in Bethlehem? Who listened to a bunch of smelly shepherds running around saying they'd seen angels? Nobody. The song says it this way, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. See, when you stick with God through faith, through all your trials, you don't always get miracles, but you always get him. And God is working in ways you can't see. One day you look back, maybe days from now, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years, maybe not till you get to heaven and you see things the way he sees them. You look back and you say, oh, I see now. Now I know what you were doing. All that time when I doubted you, all that time when I was discouraged, look at the incredible wheels that were turning to bring about something amazing in my life. So here's what I'm saying to you right now. Whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, if it's something in your life, if it's something in your family, if it's our nation, if it's our world, don't just trust what your five senses tell you. Walk by faith, not by sight. Believe that God is at work. Believe that he's doing amazing things because everything he does is amazing. Give him thanks ahead of time. Just tell him, Lord, I trust in you. I'm discouraged, but I trust in you. I will not give up. If you wait upon him, you won't regret it. If you take matters into your own hands, if you do things your way, if you fight with the weapons of this world, you will regret it. But if you trust in him, you will be vindicated. And here's the best part. Here's the second reason I told you this story. God's secret began, God's secret mission began that first Christmas, but there's a second invasion coming. You see, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He died in Jerusalem, but that's not the end of the story. He's coming back. Right now, Historically speaking, we're living between D-Day and V-E Day. We're living between the time the boots are on the ground and the time we all go free. We're still living in a world that's cursed, but it won't always be. There's that second invasion coming, and this time it won't be a baby who shows up in a manger. It'll be a warrior king on a white horse. And it won't be silent. There will be a trumpet blast. And it won't, be, it won't be a secret. Every eye will see it. The armies of heaven will be upon us. And he won't be coming to die. He'll be coming to reign forever and ever. And if you ever get discouraged about the state of leadership in this nation, just understand there is a king who will sit the throne forever and ever, who will never make a mistake, who will love you exactly as you are, who literally died for you. And that's what's coming. That is what is on its way. And so when we sing this Christmas, when we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, just think about, that's not just about Bethlehem. That's about that second invasion. You think we're going to sing joy to the world? The Lord has come when he arrives. You think we're going to rejoice? Absolutely. It'll be the greatest day you've ever seen. This, this Christmas, sing those songs thinking about the greatest arrival is yet to come. That is our future. That is our hope. And all we can do now is say glory, hallelujah.